0: When we read the opening chapters of the Bible and see the world God created where humans, uh, before we had a chance to kind of mess things up, uh, we notice something significant, that there's no religion in Eden. There are no special places where Adam and Eve can go to meet with God. There are no special holy men that they can be a mediator between them and God. There are no rituals for them to uh, do, to partake in, to Uh, connect themselves with the divine. There's just God and humanity in naked intimacy. The same holds true for the closing chapters of the Bible. If you look at Revelations 21 and 22, uh, there is no religion in the end. We find that God is bringing us back to that same kind of living that we had, a reunion in Eden. Sandwiched in between, in the middle of it all, smack dab, we find Jesus. And he's helping humanity kind of course correct to get us back on the right track. And in the time of Jesus, religion had become kind of this big finger pointing to God, but it was also obstructing people's view. Uh, The religious people of the first century considered various external characteristics uh, as boundary or markers for religious uh, living, We could divide these external issues into five categories, all of which Jesus challenged in some way. They're gonna be on your notes. Um, Torah, law of Moses. This is the letter of the law. We talked about this last week. If you weren't here last week, feel free to download that, love over law. The second was tradition. And this is tradition of the elders. There was the written Torah, right, the scriptures, but then there was this uh, 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 laws about the Torah. It was passed on from generation to generation. It was called the oral Torah. Second, or third would be temple. God's presence was believed to dwell in one holy location above all else, and worshipers could have a unique access to God's presence there, and they would offer sacrifices. Tribalism, ethnic, national, and cultural purity bound together with a religious identity. And finally, territory, a, a, a theology of a holy geography, that God is with us in a more special way than he is with other people in other places. Torah, tradition, temple, tribalism, and territory. Notice that each of these identity identity markers engenders exclusivity, us versus them. These five markers of religion still affect us today. And we looked at Torah last week. This morning, we'll look at tradition and temple. And the next week, look at tribalism and territory. And so first, tradition, tradition. Uh, They uh, wrote about the Torah And then they passed on more laws about the Torah as time went on. Uh, These extra rules were were called the tradition of the elders or the oral Torah. They were considered a fence around the law. And it kind of came from the better safe than sorry principle. So here's the rule. And so let's put a fence around it so we can't break this rule. So let's make it a, a little bit safer for us not to break this rule. And these, these fences, or this oral Torah, was designed to keep us conservative, conventional, conformist, and supposedly far from sin. In order to break the law, you had to thereby hop the fence of the oral Torah uh, and then commit whatever sin it might be. The oral Torah was the tradition. And if Jesus was willing to break the, the law we talked about last week, you can imagine how he would treat this uh, tradition. Tradition. Fences are fine for cattle, but sheep need a shepherd. And let's do an example here to just kind of see how this works. We can illustrate how traditions evolve uh, in a hypothetical biblical law. Let's just pretend that in God's law, he made it abundantly clear that thou shall not sit in red chairs, okay? Now, I have it on good authority that God's okay with it, but this is just, we're pretending here. Let's just say clearly in the biblical canon, we see that yeah, thou shall not sit in red chairs, the role of spiritual leaders would be able to communicate this to the people and perhaps suggest ways that the rule could best be followed. So the next generation uh, of religious leaders decide to put up a fence around this. Uh, God's people should never be within 10 feet of red chairs. Okay? This fence is designed to be a helpful tool for people to follow God and their desire to keep God's law. But now an insidious process right, has now begun. Next generation tax on another helpful addition. It's wrong for people to even look at red chairs. There, that should help people deal with this temptation. Can't even look at them. Further generations add that God's people must never be in the same room as red chairs, same house as red chairs. Eventually, most of the religious people of the time, uh, are their time is taken up debating whether or not people could or should shop at Ikea. Uh, this is... <laughs> This is how the tradition goes, right? A whole lineage of rules and regulations that God never intended, and it evolves around this one topic. Sin avoidance has been systematized, righteousness has been mechanized, and there's little room for deviation or diversity. Like a holy snowball, this is what was happening in the time of Jesus. The oral Torah, the tradition, had become on par with the written Torah, the law. Rather than help people move closer to God as it was originally designed, the religious leaders uh, began these traditions that Jesus actually calls heavy burdens. Jesus calls them that. And he had little tolerance for those teachings that complicated faith and made it burdensome. And so well-meaning traditions sometimes can discourage thoughtful faith. And sometimes in the church today, we can allow our traditions to do our thinking for us. So we never even have to really think. This is what we do, and we never fully own what we believe. In the end, traditions that claim to be Bible-based can subtly supplant Scripture, and we think something's Bible when it's certainly not. Here's a present-day example. Somewhere along the way, throughout church history, the institutional church developed a tradition for dressing up for Sunday services, okay? So, uh, and many religious Christians follow this tradition today, giving it the same weight as the Pharisees gave their traditions back in the day. And of course, since external appearances don't really matter to God, uh, people who want to get dressed up for church, that's great. That's wonderful. It's a meaningful sign of respect, and people are welcome to do so. But according to the Bible, that's an allowance of grace, not a mandate. We have lots of people who have come to our church wearing really, really nice clothes, and and we have a word for them, visitors, (laughs) right? This is come as you are. You you don't got to get dressed up to look good for us. You don't got to get dressed up and look for God. If you want to, awesome, look awesome. That's great. But that is a tradition, not a mandate in Scripture. Let's look at an example of Jesus doing this. Uh, and let's look at the first miracle that Jesus shows in the, the Gospel of John, in John chapter two. It's a familiar one, and there's some religious subversion here, and I, I want to dive into it. Look at John chapter two, starting at verse two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, "They've got no more wine." Jesus says, "'Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not come yet.'" His mother said to his servants, "'Do whatever he tells you. Nearby, six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, "'Fill the jars with water.'" So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, "'Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet.'" Six huge jars of the best wine going. A couple in our church are getting married next Saturday, and I'm going to try and duplicate this miracle (laughs) next Saturday night. Might take me a little bit longer to wake up for church the next morning. John here says that the stone water jars each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. This makes for a grand total of 120 and 180 gallons of wine. 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of party fuel, okay? Uh, it's, it's a nice way to enter the, the miracle niche, right, of the first century. But this is just the beginning. See, the New Testament was written in Greek. And when it says here this was the first miracle recorded, uh, it's, it's actually the word sign. It was the first sign. The miracle wasn't about just providing refreshment for thirsty wedding guests. There was something more going on here. Think about the radical symbolism involved with this event. The idea of miraculously turning water into a different substance wasn't a foreign concept for the Jewish people, right? If you know the law, the, the key story of the law mentioned in every genre of the scriptures is the Exodus account. And there in the heart of the Exodus account, we have Moses, the lawgiver, changing water into blood. Blood. And Jews would be intimately knowledgeable of this event. Moses, the lawgiver, and this is on your notes, who was granted the power to turn water into blood was a symbol of God's judgment. Now Jesus comes in power to turn water into wine, a symbol of God's blessing and joy. Something is changing here. Moses offered people freedom from Egypt. Jesus offered people freedom from sin. But there's something deeper happening here as well. Jesus wasn't just adding to the established religious tradition through this miracle. He was subverting it. Did you notice the scandal? Take a look at another verse 6. It says this. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. John tells us that Jesus did not have the wine served out of ordinary wine jars. He directed the servants to use the sacred. He specifically asked them, go to those sacred religious Purification jars. Now, one of the traditions of Jesus' time was that some religious groups had this ritual of regular hand washing. And they would dip their hands in sacred water as a way of symbolizing uh, purification and a desire to be away from sin in the world. It's not in the law, it was a tradition. Why would Jesus use these sacred stone jars to turn water into wine? Obviously, they had a bunch of wine earlier, but it ran out. Where are all those empty containers? Where's the, the actual wine jars? Where are the empties? Jesus totally could have filled up the empties, but he said specifically, go to those sacred jars and change that water. Why do this? Why intentionally do something that can be so offensive to religious people? Through his first miracle, Jesus intentionally desecrates a religious icon. His first miracle intentionally desecrates a religious icon. He purposely chooses these sacred jars to challenge the religious system by converting them from icons of personal purification into symbols of relational celebration, because that's what a wedding is. It is this joyous celebration of a new relationship. Jesus takes us from holy water to wedding wine, from legalism to life, from religion to relationship. His new wine demands new wise skins. It's not just, they're out of wine, so I'm gonna make some more booze. There is so much more happening in what ways have you allowed tradition to hinder your life? In what ways have you seen this play out in the church? Sometimes churches are the worst at this, right? Like, we do something, but that's the way we've always done it. We lost the heart, we do it, and we don't really know why we do it, but we just continue to stay on that path. Maybe a religious person maybe told you that you have to read the Bible to be a good Christian. And, when you do, you feel good. But when you don't read the Bible, and it's been maybe a couple weeks, man, this guilt just overwhelms you. You're like, oh, man, I'm really falling away from the Lord. The Bible never says that you have to read the Bible to be a good Christian. In fact, the vast majority of Christians over the last 2,000 years of Christian history were illiterate. So do we just throw them out and say uh, those were bad Christians because they didn't read the Bible? Of course not. Only within the past hundred years did literacy begin to thrive in our world. So are you saying, Pastor John, that we shouldn't read the Bible? Of course not. Many of the illiterate Christians would have died for the ability to be able to read and understand the Scriptures. All the more reasons why we should dive into the Bible. The Bible's inspired. It's God-breathed. We should read it. But if you're reading it out of guilt and beating yourself up when you don't, you fell into tradition over the abundant life that Jesus offers. Bruxy Cavey said this, the Bible's like a treasure map that points the way to Jesus. But often, Christians can treat the map as though it's the treasure itself. And when we do this, we miss the treasure completely. I agree. The Koran, the Islamic holy book, calls Christians and Jews alike people of the book. People of the book. And many Christians would agree with that label, but it's born out of a misunderstanding. Christians, Christ followers, are not people of the book. We're people of the person. We follow Jesus, not a book that Jesus wrote. That's why Jesus says, follow me, trust me, come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. Jesus. The implication is important. Reading, studying, understanding the Bible, very important. It's not the goal of following Jesus. Bible knowledge is just a first step in that. Thomas Adams says this, the Bible is to us what the star was to the wise men. But if we spend all our time gazing upon it, observing its motions and admiring its splendor without being led to Christ by it, the use of it will be lost on us. We'll talk more about the Bible next week. Now, temple. Temple. The temple was everything for the first century Jewish Christian, for the Jews. Uh, it was everything. Here's a picture of the temple here. Uh, this is Herod's temple, the second temple. And you can see all the walls, right? And the temple uh, had the outer court, it had the court of Gentiles. It had the court of women, it had the inner court, it had the altar, it had the holy place and beyond that curtain, the most holy place could only be entered by one person once every single year. It's the place where God dwelt, separated by a beautiful curtain. And in the temple, there were countless rules of who can enter. Some can only go to the outer court. Some can go to the inner court. Only the high priest could really enter fully. There's a court for non-Jews. There's a court for women. All these walls keeping people away from the presence of God. It was the only place where you could sacrifice. It was the only place where God's presence dwelt. It was a sign of God's blessing and security. It was the place where priests could burn incense, sacrifices, sacrifices. Night and day. Anything said negative about the temple was said negative about God. The two were inextricably linked in first century Palestine. And Jesus was a walking, talking, one-man counter-temple movement. He, He himself embodied everything that the temple stood for. He was offering through himself what only the religious system of his day was supposed to offer, God's grace. And this Jesus versus temple theme reaches its climax one day when Jesus visits the sacrificial institution personally. We looked at this passage before, Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and money changers and benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Rather than blessing the temple, he threw a complete temple tantrum which I thought was clever, okay. He throws this temple tantrum and says, enough of this stuff, you're, you're marketing this, you're making it a business, you're abusing people. Though he shut down the temple sacrificial system only temporarily, it was a call to rethink this concept of divine forgiveness. God never needed animal sacrifices to forgive. And when Jesus is on the cross, something else significant happened to the temple. Look at Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He dies on the cross. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain temple was the place that separated the people from God's presence. When Jesus died, that curtain tore in two. No longer is there a dividing wall between God and his people. No longer do we have to offer sacrifices to appease God. No longer do we have to go through a mediator between God and man. Jesus literally tore down the religious curtain that separated us from God. We no longer need to imagine that God dwells in special sanctuaries or church buildings, temples, or tabernacles, that he's only accessed through special priests, special holy men, special pastors, The final sacrifice has been offered. It's time to move along. The show is over. God has left the building. Do you think that God dwells more here at Prodigal Church than he does in your own living room? Do you think that as a pastor, I have a a special, unique access to God that is different and closer than the homeless drug addict living on Blackstone? Do you think that this place is more holy to God than your office break room? It is not. I am not. With Jesus, you have access to God. The temple curtain is torn. It's not through systems of spirituality. It's not through uh, an institution. It's not through a priest. Many times throughout my life, I've had people come up to me and say, well, you're, you're a pastor. You're close to God. Can you pray for, as if I have access to God in a unique, special way that they don't, and I'm like, I will pray for you, but the curtain of the, it's, it's torn. God ripped that curtain when he died on that cross and rose from the dead, and everybody has access to the divine. I don't have greater access than you, Are you catching a glimpse of what's going on here when Jesus died? He replaced tradition and temple with himself. Jesus was replacing religion with himself, fulfilling the entire religious system through his own crucifixion. At at the point of his death, he's playing three specific roles. He's the lamb being sacrificed, he's the priest offering the sacrifice, and he's the temple itself where the sacrifices happen. That's what he's doing. He's shutting down The religious system of his day, by his own death, Jesus was being and doing all that religion was trying to be and do. When I was in high school, I was sitting in a chair similar to this, listening to this pastor, and he tells this story about a guy who dies and goes to the pearly gates, and Saint Peter's there talking with him, and he says, "All right, Pete, this is what you're gonna do, man. Uh, This is how it works. You got to get 100 points." so give me your best shot, and the guy's like 100 points. He goes, Yeah, yeah. Tell me about your life. Tell me about the good things you did. She says, I went to church for the last 60 years, every Sunday except for once. And Pete says, Man, that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. Two points. And he goes, Okay, uh, I've been married to the same woman for 70 years, and I've been faithful, and she has been faithful. Wow. Pete was blown away. He said, really great job. One point. And the guy goes, you got to be kidding me. All of my church attendance, all of my years being committed to my wife and I get three points at this rate, it's by the grace of God only that I can get in. And Jesus says, great, that's worth 97 points. Come on in. (laughs) It's only by the grace of God that we get in, that we have access It's only in the grace of God and his name is Jesus. I want to invite Noe and the worship team as we close with a song. And I'll close with this story. There's a woman washing dishes. She looked at a plate and she asked herself, how many times have I washed this plate? And she's, the plate put it down and something came over her, depression, a sense of hopelessness. She packed up a small bag and left the house. That night, she called her husband and said, I'm I'm sorry, I'm gone. It's too constraining. I I would just die if I came back. She she says, I had to go. She would call once or twice a week and see how everyone was doing. And every time the husband would say, honey, come home. Honey, come home. Your family misses you. We love you. Come back. Come back. She said, I just can't. I, I just can't. And after a month, the husband hired a PI to kind of find out where she was. And one Saturday afternoon, he decided, I'm going over there. And he goes to this other side of town, across the tracks, a rough area, a small little apartment. He's freaking out, knocks on the door, not knowing what he's going to find, scared of the condition. He's not even sure if he wants to see his wife in this condition. And he knocks on the door, and she opens it. The condition of the apartment is terrible. terrible squalid condition. His eyes filled with tears, she was shocked and haltingly he said to her, honey, I love you, I want you to come home with me and the kids. She burst into tears and came home and on the drive back, on the drive back, he asked her, said, babe, I called and we talked and I begged you to come back And you never did, why now? She said, before I left, the love had gone out of our marriage. I love you were just words, but it became real today when you came to me. Love becomes real 2,000 years ago when God came to us to show us what God is like. God came to show us the real way the way that religion tried to explain and tried to show, but we kept getting in the way of ourselves. Jesus shows us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was mad. He died because he was madly in love with you and with me. And that curtain tore open and gives us access to God. Everybody has access to Jesus. Through Christ, everybody has access to God. I'm not more special or have a deeper connection. This church, it, it's just a building. God is in your car on your drive home with your kids that you argued with on the way here. God is in your car in the same way He is in this place now. There are holy moments all the time, and they don't just happen Sunday at 10. They happen if our only our eyes can see them. God is with us. He is with you. He's not stuck in a temple, the Holy of Holies, incense and sacrifice and menorahs and candles and priests in ornate uniforms. God has left the building and he showed up in the human heart. He is in us, through us, around us. Let's be sensitive to that leading. God, I pray in Jesus' name. I pray against for the the ways in which we have used tradition and called it your law. Tradition can be a wonderful, beautiful thing that connects us in a greater way to God and others, but it can also be a barrier. We could be adding more walls to the temple, more courts to keep people separate. And God, we pray that the curtain that tore 2000 years ago, when you said it is finished, that we believe that and that we live it. We've got access to God, that God's spirit is inside of us. Ephesians says that anyone who believes is sealed with the Holy Spirit. So God, may we listen to your Holy Spirit, that we don't have to offer sacrifices, that we don't have to give money, that we don't have to go through a priest who can only enter into your presence once a year. We got access to you all the time. Thank you God for that. Thank you for Jesus. Give us faith to trust what you say that you're good and your love is great. We need you and love you in Jesus name. I need you to soften me.